Across a covered bridge, one sees a small village huddled between the stream and the vertical slope of Round Mountain, and wonders at the cluster of rotting gambrel roofs bespeaking an earlier architectural period than that of the neighboring region. It is not reassuring to see on a closer glance that most of the houses are deserted and falling to ruin, and that the broken steepled church now harbors the one slovenly mercantile establishment of the hamlet. One dreads to trust the tenebrous tunnel of the bridge, yet there is no way to avoid it. Once across, it is hard to prevent the impression of a faint malign odor about the village street, as of the massed mold and decay of centuries. It is always a relief to get clear of the place and to follow the narrow road around the base of the hills and across the level country beyond till it rejoins the Aylesbury Pike. Afterward, one sometimes learns that one has been through Dunwich. HPPodcraft.com. Welcome back to the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast at HPPodcraft.com. We are picking up where we left off from last week, the second part of the HP Lovecraft story, The Dunwich Horror. Today's guest host is Robert M. Price, and today's narrator is Andrew Lehman. The local reporters, they find out about the Watleys and how crazy they are that the old Watley was a, some kind of wizard and then this kid who's four looks like he's 10 and he's creepy looking and they start doing articles about them and they kind of sort of become local celebrities and Watley is really annoyed by them but he doesn't want to be violent or anything towards them so he just kind of mildly humors their their interviews and, and ask, answers some questions even though he kind of dodges it a little bit you find out too that he pays for his cattle with old gold pieces not unlike the the terrible old man remember who used That's to pay right. with, with his doubloons yeah in that other story. Out of the general store with his doubloons <laughs> does this imply to you that he's just in it for the money that he's not some sort of uh world hating nihilist that just can't wait for the world to be dragged off into another dimension he he just needed the bucks for whatever reason <laughs> and and this is the price he pays he's got to pimp out his daughter to the devil to get this gold that he couldn't have gotten from any ordinary uh means oh well you know you know what i didn't even think i was saying now is he very 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 old and that's the reason he has this but you know you may be right maybe he just got paid off <laughs> yeah, yeah that, i mean it's just like in the the devil and daniel webster when uh scratch uh finds this hoard of hessian gold under uh jabez stone's floorboards in the barn the fact that it's so old it's like only the devil's gonna know where this is and uh it's not and they make a big deal out of that when jabez pays his debts off with the, these old uh, Hessian gold pieces that it, it came from uh, and, and the uh, the miser, the guy loaning him the money, uh, recognizes this because he's in league with Scratch too. It seems to me the same sort of symbolism. He didn't get this money from any modern source, any bank. It was supplied to him from the, uh, because the, the demons and all know where all the treasure is gathered and they give it to their, their minions who are foolish enough to deal with them. So I, I kind of take it that way and he's just throwing his daughter in as the payment they have an agenda he does not have he just wants the money and this is the price he pays he doesn't really do anything with his money though the only time that he ever uses this money is to further yog sothoth's goals like it's not like he gets a fancy car or you know starts wearing lots of jewelry and you know buys <laughs> well, it's a possible he did like and that. it just wasn't no, no, crucial just, to the story i'm just saying that you know uh, it isn't brought up in there i mean it, right. it could be possible but for me it seems like just looking at it he's really in it 
you know, he's he's drank the Kool-Aid and he's in Yogg-Sothoth camp. That could be, but he is depicted as, like you said, a hoarder or a miser. Right. That he just wants the gold, like Scrooge, who doesn't live off it. He he has a, an apartment, the only inhabited apartment in what used to be a warehouse. Right. Like, what does he do with all this money he, he uh, sucks out of people? Nothing, he just sits on it. Yeah. And it could be the same thing with, uh, with uh, yeah. the wizard. Yeah, good point. Good well, I point. think it would be great, Chris, if you wrote a story about what he did with the money. Yeah. <laughs> that, can be, that can be your contribution to the mythos. The old... not, I know you're kidding, but that's a great idea. <laughs> He's in his pimped out, you know, Ford uh, Model T and... Uh, um, He's got rims on it and everything. Yeah, he's got rims and, and jewelry, <laughs> lots of bling. That would be great. Well, uh, we're about to come to the end of Old Waitley's story. Unfortunately, there's a surge of there's another surge of carpentry at the house. People figure that what he's doing is removing all the partitions between rooms as well as the attic floor, so that the whole second story of the house is now just one vast void. And in the spring, uh, Old Waitley sees the whippoorwills congregating outside of his window, and he tells those general store guys he thinks they're. They're coming for his soul and that they're whistling in time with his breathing so he knows that his end is near um, and indeed in 1924 Wilbur uh, which I think Wilbur's about 10 or 11 years old but he's more or less an adult by this point uh, Wilbur summons a doctor from Aylesbury to attend to his uh, well his father right old lady who's <laughs> maybe whose breathing is strained and the doctor is disturbed when he arrives by all of these whippoorwills that are hanging out around the house and around one o'clock that day Old Waitley becomes cogent enough to talk to Wilbur. He says, More space, Willie. More space soon. You grows and that grows faster. It'll be ready to serve you soon, boy. Open up the gates to Yogg-Sothoth with the long chant that you'll find on page 751 of the complete edition. And then put a match to the prison. Fire from Earth can't burn it no how. Feed it regular, Willie. And mind the quantity. But don't let it grow too fast for the place, for if it busts quarters and gets out before you as opens to Yogg's Athoth, it's all over and no use. Only them from beyond can make it multiply and work. Only them, the old ones, as wants to come back. The old ones? Well, uh, the whippoorwills continue to trill along with his labored breathing, and finally he dies. And Lavinia is very sad about it. She screams and she sobs, but Wilbur only chuckles and says they didn't get him. Yeah, because the whippoorwills, they fly off. Because if they just fly off quietly, it's like they're bummed out. And they do. They fly off quietly. They don't make any noise. But if they catch the soul, they do this kind of gibbery sound. That's the legend, supposedly. So yeah. they don't make any noise. And then Wilbur knows, yeah, they didn't get him. Wilbur, he continues to grow. He's well over six feet by the time he's this age, 12. Uh, and he's corresponding with librarians all over the globe about these forbidden books that he wants to read. And mm -hmm. it's an interesting, perverse sort of reflection of normal boyhood because he's growing up so fast and he's got weird hair on his face. I think he's got like a beard, basically. Now. Yeah, he does. He's becoming contemptuous of his mother. They used to have this close relationship, but now he doesn't want anything to do with her. And she's kind of frightened of him. And maybe she should be because more whippoorwills gather around the Wiley house around Halloween. Mm. They should have migrated a month before, but they're all around. And then suddenly they do split. And after that moment, no, Lavinia has never seen or heard from again. Yeah. A cloud of probable matricide. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> That's right. That is a quote from it later. <laughs> Wilbur continues to grow, by the way. It's six feet. He goes all the way up to more than seven feet. 
he has to move after Lavinia's gone. He has to move to one of the sheds out in the farmyard, and he boards up all the doors and windows of the house, removes more partitions. So something real big in the house. Uh, he seems a little worried about something. Now, in chapter five, which is where we are now, a familiar book shows up. The following winter brought an event no less strange than Wilbur's first trip outside the Dunwich region. Correspondence with the Widener Library at Harvard, the Bibliothèque Nationale in Paris, the British Museum, the University of Buenos Aires, and the library of Miskatonic University of Arkham had failed to get him the loan of a book he desperately wanted. So at length, he set out in person, shabby, dirty, bearded, and uncouth of dialect, to consult the copy at Miskatonic, which was the nearest student geographically. Almost eight feet tall, and carrying a cheap new valise from Osborne's general store, this dark and goatish gargoyle appeared one day in Arkham in quest of the dreaded volume kept under lock and key at the college library, the hideous Necronomicon of the mad Arab Abdul al-Hazred in Olaus Wormius's Latin version as printed in Spain in the 17th century. He had never seen a city before, but had no thought save to find his way to the university grounds, where, indeed, he passed heedlessly by the great white-fanged watchdog that barked with unnatural fury and enmity, and tugged frantically at its stout chain. Uh, it's the Necronomicon. Yeah, there's a lot of detail in this about the Necronomicon, and, and Wilbur actually has... Uh, the John D. copy. It's all just kind of messed up and fallen apart and really, really old. And he he goes to the library and he wants to see the Latin version, which is the version that John D. based his English version on. And if now we talked about this on the history of the Necronomicon episode, so we won't go into too much detail. But he he thinks that there's something uh, that was mistranslated in the version that he has, and he wants to take a look at it. And this is when we get an introduction to Doctor Armitage, who is the kind of the head of the of the library and he knows about these books wilbur goes and says uh, that there's a specific part that he wants to look at yeah it's page 751 which is what uh, old waitley had told him you know he need to look at the entire book and it's on that page the now, how did he know that do you suppose he didn't have a copy of it obviously yeah because in the john d version it wouldn't say what page it was on from its translation and i doubt that the translation would have the same amount of pages in there so maybe he's done his own research or, or talked with other scholars that know about these books and he's looking for the specific yag sothoth ritual I mean, that's my yeah, guess. Yeah, that's all. I, yeah, I bet you're right. Yeah. Wilbur finally picks a passage, and Armitage kind of peeks over his shoulder while he's transcribing the Latin. It says that it's an involuntary peek, but come on, you know, Armitage. <laughs> it's a heck of a peek. It's almost like two paragraphs worth of peeking. Yeah, and uh, and this is it. Nor is it to be thought, ran the text as Armitage mentally translated it, that man is either the oldest or the last of Earth's masters, or that the common bulk of life and substance walks alone. The old ones were, the old ones are, and the old ones shall be. Not in the spaces we know, but between them. They walk serene and primal, undimensioned and to us unseen. Yogg-Sothoth knows the gate. Yogg-Sothoth is the gate. Yogg-Sothoth is the key and guardian of the gate. Past, present, future, all are one in Yogg-Sothoth. He knows where the old ones broke through of old and where they shall break through again. He knows where they have trod Earth's fields and where they still tread them, and why no one can behold them as they tread. 
By their smell can men sometimes know them near, but of their semblance can no man know, saving only in the features of those they have begotten on mankind. And of those are there many sorts, differing in likeness from man's truest eidolon to that shape without sight or substance which is them. They walk unseen and foul in lonely places where the words have been spoken and the rites howled through with their seasons. The wind gibbers with their voices and the earth mutters with their consciousness. They bend the forest and crush the city, yet may not forest or city behold the hand that smites. Kadath in the cold waste hath known them, and what man knows Kadath? The ice desert of the south and the sunken isles of ocean hold stones whereon their seal is engraven. But who hath seen the deep frozen city or the sealed tower long garlanded with seaweed and barnacles? Great Cthulhu is their cousin, yet can he spy them only dimly? Ia, Shobnigurath, as a foulness shall ye know them. Their hand is at your throats, yet ye see them not, and their habitation is even one with your guarded threshold. Yogg-Sothoth is the key to the gate whereby the spheres meet. Man rules now where they ruled once. They shall soon rule where man rules now. After summer is winter, and after winter, summer. They wait, patient and potent, for here shall they reign again. So that's an actual passage from the Necronomicon which we don't normally No, get. no, it's a whole thing. Okay. Now, there's a couple things in there that are interesting. Um, uh, Shabnagurath, which was mentioned first in the last test, is, is, is mentioned here again. And we didn't talk about it too much there, but what is... Or we sort we of hit on it, but what well, is... Later on, Shabnagurath kind of becomes a fertility goddess, and in a late letter, Lovecraft declares that she is a, and I quote, hellish cloud-like entity and the wife of Yogg-Sothoth. Oh, oh, Yogg... Yogg Sothoth is married. Well, I guess so. <laughs> I don't. I don't know what kind of marriage this uh, this was. If it was a you know a Christian marriage or. Oh, that's lovely. I'm so happy for them. <laughs> but there's a god called uh, Sheol Nu Naganoth. That's it. Yeah, from uh, Dunsany's Idle Days of Yan. And obviously, mm -hmm. Lovecraft was a big fan of, of Dunsany, so maybe you know that's where he got it. Well, that's certainly where he got Nyarlathotep also. Uh, so he, I mean, the fact that there are two of them, as Dunsany has a prophet, uh, Alhireth Hotep, and a god, Minarthotep, uh, Lovecraft must have gotten Nyarlathotep from that, and right. that just rules out any possibility that it didn't get Shubnagorath from Sheol Nuganov. Right. And, and you'd seen this kind of idea before that um, in the Dream Quest, Carter was searching for men that looked like the carving of the old ones on the rock. So in, in that passage, you have that idea that we can know the old ones mm. from their images and their children. So mm -hmm. it's sort of a theme that he plays on a, a lot. Now, Armitage is actually somewhat aware of Wilbur's story. I think he'd visited Dunwich at some point, and he knows that there's that cloud of probable matricide around Wilbur, and he knows about his, his birth. And yeah. His impression of him is that he's partly born out of some other sphere of existence. Well, yeah, I mean, but see, here's the thing is he let <laughs> he let Wilbur come in and check out and read the book. And then it's not until after he kind of looks over his shoulder and sees his passage that this wave of, oh, no, 
yeah, what did I what do? What did I do? <laughs> this guy's not human because at this point he's like like seven foot tall or something like that. He's gigantic. Yeah, yeah. He let he let the vampire into the blood bank. So yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then he goes, "Oh man, what? I can't believe I did that." Wilbur goes, "You know, uh, I really need to borrow this book." because I need to take it back and do some stuff with it. Armitage is going, well, I can't really let it out of here. And he even thinks to himself, well, I could let him copy it and take the copy with him. But wait, I'm not going to do that because he's up to no good. And he says, no, I'm not going to give it to you. And he stands firm. And then Wilbur just kind of goes, well, all right, if you feel that way about it, maybe Harvard won't be so fussy with their copy. And then he beats it. There is, and it's also really funny when, as Bob quoted before, that Wilbur says, "Look, I won't mess it up if you let me take it." This this John Deere copy, I didn't do that. It was my dad. <laughs> Twant me that put this D copy in the shape it's in. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't me. He doesn't want to take the blame for it. And also, Armitage notices that Wilbur's got that stench about him. Uh, one thing that surprised me on a rereading of this was that. Uh, Armitage doesn't have to overcome some initial rationalistic unbelief like some of the other protagonists, like uh, Wilmarth. Uh, he uh, he already knows all about yeah. this and says, gee, I, I don't dare trust this into the hands of such a being. W- wait a minute, how is this? I mean, uh, admittedly, he has access to the book, but he, he must not believe everything that's in every rare yeah. book. And it's it's almost like he's a Lumley character. He's already part of the Wilmarth Foundation. Uh, right. it's, I'm just a little surprised at that somehow. Yeah, well, he seems to not only know all about that stuff, but he knows that this is a ripoff of Great God Pan because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. he knows he's like aware of the story itself. He says uh, he chuckles because people whisper that Wilbur's the product of in- inbreeding, and he thinks to himself, show them Arthur Mackin's Great God Pan, and maybe they'd have some clue as to what's happening here. Yeah. They'll think it's it a like, common Dunwich scandal, like this is happening all the time. <laughs> right. <laughs> he's an interesting figure, and I think that he's our, he's our Lovecraft. Yeah, right, exactly. Mm. And and at, at one point too, Lovecraft even specifically says that he really starts to relate to Doctor Armitage. You know, when he was when he was writing this, Armitage starts to make some inquiries about Wilbur. He talks to the doctor who attended to Old Whaley when he died, and uh, that man tells him what those last words were, which he correlates with this passage of the book. and And he pours over the Necronomicon himself, and he thinks, you know what something might need to be done about this kid. And he also gets in, gets in contact with, with all of the other places that have copies of the Economicon. It says, don't let this guy anywhere near those books. Right, which brings us into the sixth chapter when Wilbur goes to all of those other libraries trying to get the Necronomicon, and everybody heeds Dr. Armitage's advice. They won't give it to him. Now, one night in August, Armitage is woken by the cries of the watchdog on the college campus. The dog is going crazy, and he hears this scream which is um, so horrible, the text says it's going to haunt the dreams of Arkham residents ever afterward. So Armitage, you know, he throws on some clothing. It doesn't say what he throws on, so I'm just going to imagine it's a woman's robe. That's <laughs> a, pink, a pink dressing robe. Or a tutu, possibly. <laughs> he hauls ass over to the library where the burglar alarm is going off. There's an open window and some barking and screaming that's coming from within. And the- so he goes to unlock the door, and he takes two of his colleagues, Professor Warren Rice and Dr. Francis yep. Morgan. Uh, they go in with him where there's this low whining, and the whole library has Wilbur's stench. And, of course, there's whippoorwills gathering all around the place, too. Well, Armitage gets the courage up to flip the light switch, and the men gasp. Rice almost faints at, at what's sprawled out in the room. The thing that lay half-bent on its side in a fetid pool of greenish-yellow ichor and tarry stickiness was almost nine feet tall, and the dog had torn off all the clothing and some of the skin. 
It was not quite dead, but twitched silently and spasmodically while its chest heaved in monstrous unison with the mad piping of the expectant whippoorwills outside. Bits of shoe leather and fragments of apparel were scattered about the room, and just inside the window, an empty canvas sack lay where it had evidently been thrown. Near the central desk, a revolver had fallen, a dented but undischarged cartridge later explaining why it had not been fired. The thing itself, however, crowded out all other images at the time. It would be trite and not wholly accurate to say that no human pen could describe it, but one may properly say that it could not be vividly visualized by anyone whose ideas of aspect and contour are too closely bound up with the common life forms of this planet and of the three known dimensions. It was partly human, beyond a doubt, with very man-like hands and head, and the goatish, chinless face had the stamp of the Waitleys upon it. But the torso and lower parts of the body were teratologically fabulous, so that only generous clothing could ever have enabled it to walk on Earth unchallenged or uneradicated. Above the waist, it was semi-anthropomorphic, though its chest, where the dog's rending paws still rested watchfully, had the leathery, reticulated hide of a crocodile or alligator. The back was piebald with yellow and black and dimly suggested the squamous covering of certain snakes. Below the waist, though, it was the worst, for here all human resemblance left off and sheer fantasy began. The skin was thickly covered with coarse black fur, and from the abdomen a score of long greenish-gray tentacles with red-sucking mouths protruded limply. Their arrangement was odd, and seemed to follow the symmetries of some cosmic geometry unknown to Earth or the solar system. On each of the hips, deep set in a kind of pinkish ciliated orbit, was what seemed to be a rudimentary eye, whilst in lieu of a tail there depended a kind of trunk or feeler with purple annular markings, and with many evidences of being an undeveloped mouth or throat. The limbs, save for their black fur, roughly resembled the hind legs of prehistoric Earth's giant saurians, and terminated in ridgy-veined pads that were neither hooves nor claws. When the thing breathed, its tail and tentacles rhythmically changed color, as if from some circulatory cause normal to the non-human side of its ancestry. In the tentacles, this was observable as a deepening of the greenish tinge whilst in the tail it was manifest as a yellowish appearance which alternated with a sickly grayish-white in the spaces between the purple rings. Of genuine blood there was none, only the fetid greenish-yellow ichor which trickled along the painted floor beyond the radius of the stickiness and left a curious discoloration behind it. Oh, oh man. <laughs> It's a horrifying thing that he was keeping oh, it all yeah. buttoned up. Yeah, I mean, it's, he's got little tentacles that come off that have little mouths onto tentacles. And that could be similar to, you know, the, the sores that were on the Watleys, you know, Lavinia and Old Man, right. too. They had those little... So maybe little baby Wilbur was, you know, suckling off, off their necks or something like that. That was a thought that crossed my mind, yeah. I bet you're right. Ugh. Lovecraft generally said that you should leave the true horror to the reader's imagination and be subtle uh, well why doesn't he do that here and i think the reason is he's trying for a different effect he doesn't want anymore to leave you to wonder he wants to uh, underline the fact yeah this is a completely alien yeah. life form let me show you how alien. yeah 
And mm. that's an interesting judgment call. I think it works. When I read oh, that, yeah. it, it made me like kind of disturbed me. It was really creepy when when it said that it had the the mouse. And I remembered from the beginning of the story when they talked about those sores that it's just such a perversion of you know the natural nursing process and the fact that it wasn't just the mother it was also the father grandfather Karen. Mm. it's just really disturbing and creepy and maybe that's all in my head oh no no <laughs> i think you're there what what is there to be yeah. gotten oh i love this tragic flaw of a lot of hp lovecraft characters where they know everything about the outside world and what's really happening in the universe but they have a really hard time navigating the actual mundane world <laughs> Sort of like Joseph Kerwin had this great plan in the case of Charles Dexter Ward, but he was felled because he was signing checks badly. I mean, and and this this kid just gets he gets killed by dogs. I mean, it's a very you know his what was his robbery plan here? The burglar alarm went off, the dog got him. Like it was a terrible plan, whatever it was, to steal this book. He had his gun with him, and they said that his gun was found, and there was a cartridge that was was damaged. So it's like he was going to shoot the dog, but it it misfired. Mm-hmm. So. He couldn't shoot the dog, and the dog killed him. But he should have known not to discharge a gun either. I mean, he should have done what he what a burglar, what a real burglar does, and get a little domino mask <laughs> and have the little uh, have the little outfit, and you know, sneak on his tiptoes. He didn't know to do that. No, stuff. yeah. Wilbur isn't quite dead yet when they find him. He notices them and starts gasping out fragments of words, fragments that are perhaps from the Necronomicon. He well, you know, specifically what he says, Nagai, Naga, Nagata. It's it's totally similar to what was in Charles Dexter Ward. Which was Yayai mm-hmm. Nagaga Yogsothoth. That was one of the chants that uh, the incantations that Kerwin does. He finally dies. The whippoorwills all scatter, and the dog leaps out the window. And Armitage won't let anybody in until the medical examiner comes to cover the corpse up. He doesn't want people to see this, but strange things are happening to it. It starts to shrink and, and sort of disintegrate. As Bob said before, yeah, he dissolves. Yeah. There's nothing left but a kind of sticky whitish mass on the floor. Ooh, this comes from. Uh, the great god Pan, when uh, finally Helen Vaughn is trapped on the bed, or I guess she's died, and they w- see the incredible spectacle of her morphing back through evolutionary ancestral ancestors till there's nothing left of her. Uh, the uh, thing that Wilbur says there, I've always taken to be his last-ditch effort to free his brother, and it works that this is the, as close as he's going to come. And so he says this with his dying breath, and then, sure enough, upstate, kaboom. <laughs> <laughs> right, which is the, uh, the the seventh chapter, and it even says in the text, that wasn't the actual Dunwich horror. You know, that was horrible what we just witnessed, but now we're getting the actual Dunwich horror, which is, as you say, this thing breaking out of the Whaley house. Uh, so that actual Dunwich horror we're going to get to in the next episode. Uh, unfortunately, Bob's got to take off, but we really appreciate oh, having you on it's the so show. so great. Oh, great fun. Yeah, what a show. What an idea. <laughs> Thank you. Hey, doing a real service. Thank you very much. Where are you joining us from, uh, Bob? Are you in your house? Yeah, I'm just in my study here, my book-lined study in uh, the house in uh, Selma, North Carolina. Well, I hope we can have you on again sometime. We really I'd appreciate it. I'd love to, it. yeah. Uh, I want to thank Andrew Lehman again for doing our reading, and uh, that's it for this week. We'll be back with the actual Dunwich Horror and the next part of this, this uh, series on the story. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And I'm Chris Lackey. And I'm Wilbur Waitley. <laughs> and I, I'm Bob Price. <laughs> and this has been the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. At hppodcraft.com. hppodcraft.com.
want me that put this D copy in the shape it's in. 